welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. Uh, I know other people who did the same thing, and they got a lot of really good feedback from the women that they had dated or the you know girls at the time that they dated and they were very grateful that they had those conversations. Um, not everyone responds that way, right? Some people get angry and they shut down. Some people refuse to acknowledge what they did. And it isn't anything that we would ever forget because it's in your body. Welcome back to the second half of our conversation with Jesse and Ariel. In this episode, we talk about the Me Too movement and mental health. But to kick things off, Ariel actually shares a story about her family. And I just want to make a note of it here to provide some context. Ariel's father is the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. So he has risen in prominence as a leader among leaders, particularly around customer loyalty and customer service. And he is looked to all over the world for guidance and wisdom on how to set up a superb business. So I was curious to hear what it was like growing up in the household of someone who the public eye turns to and looks to for advice. When your caregiver and the person traditionally we think of as where we get our childhood wisdom from is also looked to by Fortune 500 CEOs on a daily basis for wisdom. What's that like? So that's where this episode jumps into first, and then it goes from there. And if you're curious to learn more about Horst Schultze and his book, Excellent Wins, I highly encourage you to check it out on Amazon, order your copy, or listen to it on audiobook. Again, the name of the book is Excellence Wins. Enjoy this episode. Um, I guess starting off, you know, my dad actually founded the Brits Carlton Hotel Company. So he was a COO and president for a long time. Um, And, you know, that was a really cool upbringing. He did travel 200 days a year. He was gone a lot. But, you know, when he was home, he was home. Um, Very, very present. So I was very fortunate in that regard. He's very loving. Um, But, you know, there are, uh, as Cape and I were kind of talking, there are some connotations behind being daughter of someone really successful. Um, Everyone kind of just suspects I'm going to ride, quote unquote, ride on daddy's coattails, if you will, you know. Um, And I've always just really wanted to make a name for myself because that's what my dad did. And I just, I I really am passionate about that. He is the American dream. You know, he started off Nazi Germany, not, he literally, the bathroom was an outhouse. He had no money, scavenged for food, and he literally just worked his way up and he came over to America on a boat. He's literally off the boat, um, uh, immigrant. And he came over, um, working on a cruise ship and just worked his way up. That's how he did it. Hard work, nose to the, to the grindstone. And he just went for it. And, um, and you know, a, a lot of people just kind of expect, okay, well, because your dad is Horst Schultze, which is a name that's well known in the service industry. You know, he was close to Stephen Covey, True Cathy, all those people. Um, you know, you you should just have things handed to you. And 
there are a lot of just negative connotations, like, you know, how I grew up, you know, expecting that things were just handed to me. And I'm not saying that I didn't lead a really blessed life. Like my parents spoiled me in some areas being majority was my health, of course, because of my health issues we talked about before, making sure I'm supported there. My, my education, I am very, very blessed to say I don't have any uh, student loan debt. That's incredible. And travel. They wanted me experience different cultures. That was huge because my parents are of different cultures. So they wanted me experience it firsthand. But a lot of people think, you know, I was handed cars and and, and I, I don't even know what um, a lot of things just growing up. And I'm not saying I, I wasn't fortunate in some areas, but I'm also not saying my, well, let's, be real. I, I, I worked at Chick-fil-A and had to get a certain amount grades, certain grades and X, Y, Z in order to pay for my first car. My parents and I had a deal. If I certain, uh, hit a certain amount of grades, if I do X, Y, Z, then they'll, they'll help me out. But I, you know, they put me to work. <laughs> and so now, you know, um, I have people saying, well, why don't you just use your dad to get this job or that job? Well, the reason being is because whenever I go to a company and they find out who my dad is, they just want to kind of use me for my dad. I've learned that the hard way. And then there are the negative connotations. Oh, well, you're fine. You, you're set. You, you, you don't have to be worried about uh, your finances or anything like that. You have your, your support system. Well, I have a support system, but I'm also a human being. <laughs> you know, I work really hard and I pay my own mortgage. I pay for my own, you know, insurance, whatever. I pay my own taxes. I am independent, but um, it's kind of, it's not a woe is me. It's just like, eh, there are just some, you know, connotations that are a little, that are negative. And I don't like to write off daddy's coattails. I want to make my own name, but the moment someone hears my name, there's just an expectation. And um, I am my own person. I'm not my dad. Uh, and I realized there's this victim culture. Um, what I was explaining just a little bit ago with my dad was not a victim thing. It was just like, yeah, here's my situation. That's how I feel about my line. Eh, it's just my situation. Everyone has their things. They have things they deal with and they have to manage. But there's this victim culture where everyone feels like they need to say they're sorry. Or they need to, you know, be like, oh, what was you or something like that. And the thing is, no, it shouldn't be that way. We all have our things. We all deal with them. We all manage them. And you know, I, I think that's very common with today in this day and age and era. And this is going to be a little fringe for some people to hear um, or agree with. But, you know, the Me Too movement, you know, hashtag Me Too, you know, I understand like getting, you know, putting sexual assault at the forefront of people's minds and, you know, wanting to fight for that. But it became a victim culture. Um, it was more people saying, oh, woe is me. Here's my story. Instead of becoming a victim, I believe in being a victor and just overcoming it. Instead of just talking about it, what are we going to do to change it? You know, you don't need to talk to me about or tell people about your experience in order to, you know, start change. I think it's really important that we live things out rather than just talk about it. And so instead of saying, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, you have Lyme or, you know, you are dealing with mental illness or what, you know, what have you is say, hey, what are you doing about that? Like how I understand your passion about it. What what what's going on there? Tell me a little bit more more about it. Have you ever heard Ariel of the um, TED Talk called What People Say When They Don't Know What to Say? It's by Adrian Haslett Davis. 
It was like five I, years ago. I have heard that one. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, the TED Talk touches on the weird things that people say when they just have no idea what to say. So it's I agree with the um, the tendency for people to take a victim mentality if they don't know what it looks like to take responsibility for situations, even if it's out of their control. Like you were talking about, um, what did you, you were talking about the Me Too movement was one of the things that you brought up. And as someone who is part of that um, unfortunate <laughs> demographic, one of the things that I decided to do was actually confront the person that I was affected by and it gave me a lot of power back. And so instead of just being woe is me, and just sad and sorry for myself and whatever the you know feeling was at the time. I don't even remember. This was years and years ago. I just decided to take control of it. And even though the conversation didn't go very well, I still have it in my phone as like an anniversary as like, this is the day that I had that conversation. And it's way more uh, powerful than getting a lot of uh, sympathy for something that I don't want sympathy for. So I'm right there with you, girl. So powerful. Jesse, I love that you did this. You know, you 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 live something. You don't want to live there. You don't want to resonate and dwell in it. You just want to move on and heal and just carry on with your life. It's interesting because for a long period of time, I did want to live there because I didn't know what else to do. And the amount of stress that I had lived through was so comforting. And I, I dealt with a lot of therapy during this period of my life. So I remember confronting that realization of, oh, I like this stress. I like this sadness. I like this identity, but that's not healthy. So how are we going to move past it? And that took a lot of work, but I do understand both sides of it now. So when I meet somebody who has a similar situation as I had, it's easier for me to um, accept them where they're at and not judge them and and understand, okay, you're going through this process and, and where are you at on your journey? Okay, yep, I've been there and that's okay. And then knowing how to listen to them because some people don't know how to take responsibility for their um, the re their reaction. I remember as a kid, uh, not knowing that I could choose my my feelings or, or my, my responses to the way that somebody made me feel. And it took me forever, three decades. It took me three decades to figure out in this moment, I can choose to have this response. But as a kid, I did not understand that because I felt that there were so many things pushed upon me that I didn't want. And it just made me feel whatever it made me feel, whether it was confused or ashamed or sad or angry or abandoned or whatever it was. Like I didn't understand that I could choose something else. Three decades later, I'm finally understanding okay, I can choose my response to this. Yeah, and action science is a kind of um, study that, that basically says exactly that, like we have the ability to choose and there's kind of a catchphrase that encompasses what action science is. And it says, we are the space between the impulse and the response. Or no, I think it says, Freedom is the space between the impulse and the response. That idea that when there's this emotional impulse, it doesn't have to directly lead to a reaction that we can actually pause and examine that impulse 
mm-hmm. and determine whether or not we want to engage that impulse with some kind of reaction. Yeah. And action science is all about teaching that. And as a white male <clears throat> for whom the whole system is rigged, right? Every part of the system pretty much in the whole planet is tilted in my favor as a white English speaking male. And that has been a long journey for me to come to recognize and then to stand within that, what what it means for that. And I'm still wrestling with that. But when it comes to the Me Too movement, I so deeply valued all of the talk that happened because I was so oblivious not because I didn't know individuals who had experienced horrific sexual assault, not because I hadn't helped in in personal relationships, bring healing and freedom in areas where there was repression, but because the system was so heavily skewed in my favor, I did not see how pervasive the abuse and pain was throughout the whole system until the voices from across the system were speaking in unison. And it shook me. And I remember talking with Jen and saying what, like really trying to process through what does this mean? And one of the things she said is like, yeah, the, the perpetrator, the abuser presumes that the victim forgets. They don't ever want to bring it up because they think, Oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm sure that she's not thinking about this anymore when it comes to the mind of the, the abuser. Right? So if an event comes up in someone's mind, they're like, Oh, I don't want to say anything to anyone because they, they probably moved on. And my wife was like, no, as, as victims, like we never move on. Like that is always living in our minds. And so I had to internalize that. And I began to process, okay, what are the relationships that I've been in in my life? And is there anything about that that I've completely glossed over because I didn't think it was a big deal, but maybe it was a big deal. And so my action step during the Me Too movement was actually to reach out to prior girlfriends and just say, I'm sorry. Like here, like here's what I remember of my behavior. Um, and I'm not going to try to make any defense of it, but here's what I remember. And I just want to open this with an apology and say that I may have crossed boundaries that I was unaware of. And me doing that might've caused you hurt and pain. And you might still be suffering from my stupidity, my bullheaded, whatever it is, my white maleness that interrupted your flow and caused pain. And if it seems helpful to you, like I, I want to listen, I want to hear it out. I want to apologize. Um, but that, that was my action step. And I wouldn't have done that if there wasn't this really loud national conversation happening about it, because I would have thought I, I just wouldn't have been aware. And so I'm really thankful, I guess is what I'm saying that. And, and I hope that the conversation continues and continues to be amplified loudly nationally because it's still an ongoing issue that we haven't really quite actually gotten our culture around yet. 
I first of all want to say I think what you decided to do was the best thing that you could have done in that situation. Uh, I know other people who did the same thing and they got a lot of really good feedback from the women that they had dated or the you know girls at the time that they dated and they were very grateful that they had those conversations. Um, not everyone responds that way, right? Some people get angry and they shut down. Some people refuse to acknowledge what they did. And it isn't anything that we would ever forget because it's in your body. You have this, you have this muscle memory, you have this, this, uh, it's ingrained into who you are. Soul and ties. It's a soul tie. Yeah, absolutely. So cave in the fact that you were willing to have that conversation to let your pride fall or whatever it was that you needed to do to get to that point. Amazing. And I also think that, like you were saying, it's amplified, right? Because the world is geared towards you as a, as a white male, a straight white male. I think with the Black Lives Matter movement, we're getting that, you know, I, I mean, I'm a white female, right? Like I have black neighbors that I've been having these conversations with and I am just appalled at what they've gone through. And I don't even know until these conversations happen. So I'm being aware of my whiteness as well. You know, even though I've had hardships, whatever, like it, the, the system is still rigged in my favor as a white human. So we're all trying to figure out how to best approach these topics and, you know, how to support one another, no matter what we've gone through, no matter how in favor the world is towards us. There's always somebody else that we can learn from. And, you know, like, it, it, it's hard to have those conversations because for so many reasons, you know, be it just lack of knowledge, quote unquote ignorance, which has a really negative connotation, but in the truest definition, you know, do I just not know? You know, you, you, and then you get media media gosh it depends on <laughs> you can't turn on the tv without having someone's opinion or um a biased piece of information just put absolutely on and, and it's, it's so awkward weird. too it's yes. an awkward conversation because how much do you not know that you don't know i didn't know what juneteenth was until this year that's so awkward Me neither. yeah same <laughs> But yeah, and you just, you get it, you know, you, you have, it feels like you're being shot from every direction with, um, water from a, a fire hose, you know, and you're like, what, 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 what data do I look at? Because, you know, you're presented with data and you're like, whoa, whoa, was this fact checked? And I, I'm personally a libertarian. I am truly middle of the road. <laughs> and so, Joe, Joe Jorgensen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big Ron Paul fan myself. <laughs> And, you know, it's, 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 you know, just sitting in the middle and you're, you're, you don't even know what outlet to look at or listen to. Cause it's just, you know, it's hard to find even your piece. So you try to find your own data and then you don't even know if the data has been fact checked. It's just so hard. Just all I want to be presented with is the facts. That's it. Period over out. Okay. But there, but, but, but there's this idea. Okay. So this is great. And, and by the way, P.S. Ariel, I still want to circle back around to how we opened with growing up as a daughter of a successful person because there's more on that I want <laughs> to dig it. into. But sure. we're enjoying this, so let's keep going. 
So there's this idea called information architecture. And what information architecture says is that there is data, but as soon as we arrange that data to become knowledge, we have somehow architected it. And the act of arranging data, whether it's literally putting it into a chart or into a news article or any other form, as soon as we take raw, unfiltered, unarranged data, and we begin to assemble it in a way that can actually be consumed by the human mind, we are bringing to that data our bias. And not even, I shouldn't even say our bias, that has its own negativity to it. We are bringing to that data our humanness. And our humanness is rooted in our own story. It's rooted in who we are, where we've come from, where we think we're going, and what we'd like to see the world become. We can't not bring that to the table because we can't not be human. No matter how hard we try to remove our humanity to the great detriment of humanity, we are human. And the embrace of our humanity in a gracious, egalitarian, inclusive way is one of the greatest things we can bring to the world. But this idea that all we want is the facts, I feel it in my bones, and then I have to check myself to be like, but I can't ever just get the facts. kind of piggyback on the uh, finding the right doctor who won't give up on you. So I have, in my family, there's quite a bit of mental illness. Most of it is depression and ADHD and anxiety, but every once in a while you get something a little bit more uh, exciting. And one of the things that I didn't realize that I had until college was this coping mechanism where I would um, have an out-of-body experience and I would just stay out of my body, which sounds very uncomfortable. It is. A lot of children um, develop this coping mechanism without realizing that they're doing it, and it's called dissociation. And there are three different types. Um, one is depersonalization, where you don't feel real, derealization, where nothing seems real, and then there's um, dissociative identity disorder, where you just put on this other sort of personality to cope. But it's not. You speak multiple personality not- disorder, right? It's closer to borderline, I would say. Okay. So, yeah. So what I realized that I had after years of trying to figure out what the heck is happening to my psychology is, is I, I had developed this coping mechanism from such a high stress environment as a child and like childhood trauma and all that stuff. And I was, I was having these out of body experiences, but I didn't know that's what it was. And so I went to every doctor I could over the course of like 10 years. I finally found this therapist that was, that was helping me unpack, you know, from the beginning, like you were saying, Ariel, what happened, you know, as early as you can remember. What is your very first memory? Oh, it's a trauma. Okay. So let's figure out what happened. And then, you know, we went step by step, step by step. And she recommended a type of therapy called EMDR, which is, Um, bilateral stimulation yeah of of your brain to help reprocess 
memories and how you respond to things. And they actually use it for uh, veterans with PTSD and all sorts of stuff. And it, and it helped relieve a lot of that. I was able to come back, you know, more mind body reconnect, but I was having these symptoms for about 10 years and I kept getting into these cycles of being completely spaced out. I actually went through all of college having these symptoms and it's just such a miracle that I was able to get through college and get my degree because it was so all consuming and I couldn't figure it out. So for me to hear you talk about your Lyme journey and being able to identify what it is, get the proper treatment, like that is huge. That is huge when you have an issue, when you have a doctor that is willing to stick it out with you. And, and you, your case is interesting to your doctor, right? Like they weren't going to give that up because it was, it was interesting and you made an impact in that way. Um, I, I was lucky enough to have the same relationship with my therapist at the time. So Absolutely. yeah. And the brain is such a powerful thing. Oh my gosh, of course it is. And I'm so glad you're able to figure that out because. Oh know, my Lyme, gosh, me too. <laughs> Thank you. Like, I mean, what a relief. Cause you know, you're like, am yeah. I going crazy? I'm thinking clearly, right. but my brain isn't acting clearly. And I think that's the thing that people have that misconception on mental health and mental illness. It's, it's not that the person's unhealthy. This is a chemical imbalance. That's all it is. And I, you know, the Lyme gave me severe anxiety and depression and I brain fog in a way where I would go out, have a whole conversation, 30 minutes talking to my roommate in college. And I'd go back in my room for 10 minutes. I'd come back out and start the exact same conversation with her, not remembering that we literally just had it. And she'd look at me like, what? Ariel, we just yeah. had this, or forgetting where the grocery store is literally right down my street and, or my classes. And so I understand getting through that college. I mean, what a crazy time. That's when health issues are at their peak and we mm-hmm. have to, we're expected to choose our entire life, you know, uh, the, the direction of our entire life during that time. But I don't know if you've heard of the Amen clinics, but Dr. Daniel Amen is incredible you know he actually is one of the people um headlining the the uh concussion case with nfl oh wow and he's incredible my mom's actually a counselor so everything you're saying i'm like yes yes emdr yes (laughs) (laughs) love it yeah when you knew what emdr was i was like okay so you should have some relationship to psychology then yeah yeah exactly and so but um you know with Amen clinics, they do just kind of expanding on that, that point of Western versus uh, homeopathic medicine, you know, uh, the Amen clinics, they do this really interesting brain scan. It's not a CT scans, nothing like you've ever seen before. It's showing the activity in your brain in a way that it's kind of looks like a, a, a rainbow um, and showing where your brain is more active. And they even have this other type scan that shows, you know, if you have, for instance, it's called the ring of fire for, so if you have bipolar, you'll see a ring around the brain where it's the most active and it looks like a ring of fire because it's just all lit up. And they really believe in healing, actually healing the brain, just like we were talking about DNA cave and, you know, healing DNA, healing the brain. And it's incredible what he's actually seen, how you can actually heal your brain. You see these kind of in the images, if you look it up, it's fascinating where you see almost lumps in the brain or holes in the brain where there's no activity anymore due to what have you, drug use, concussions, um, or just genetics, 
you know, and you can even see trauma on the brain. So rape victims, you'll see like a hole where that trauma was. And so being able to actually fix and heal the brain and seeing people with concussions, uh, you see their whole, their brain beforehand and their holes in the brain and being able to heal that with supplements. That's it, supplements. And he has a very extensive supplement program that it works, frankly, incredibly. I've had two concussions and I remember my brain working at a different level before I actually started taking these, uh, before I got the concussions. And then after the concussions, everything slowed down. I couldn't find the words like I used to. I couldn't draw connections like I used to. And it drove me crazy as I'm sure, Jesse, you can totally relate to that where you know your brain can work one way, but Mm -hmm. it's just not doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like you're stuck in molasses or something. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so, so, but he has been able to actually prove that he is healing brains by showing those scans activity where all these holes were, were now are now filled up. And it's very, it's fascinating that, you know, people think that you can't heal the brain or you can't heal DNA, but it's possible. And I think that's modern technology. That's where that comes into play. But is it, you know, he's using Western medicine with these, these scans, but using these homeopathic supplements to actually fix and cure someone. And that I think is beautiful, but also he does talk about, he does also have counselors on his staff. Counselors are amazing. You know, you, you, being able to have a safe space like that and someone that can, you can actually talk to and who can help you recognize what's happening in your brain. I mean, being able, someone to actually say, hey, you're not crazy. Like if someone told me that, when someone told me that with the Lyme stuff, my doctor, Dr. Pratt told me, hey, it's not all in your head. I was like, wait, really? <laughs> and Jesse, I know, I know. Like you, you that's that's huge with, with um, mental illness and stuff like that. Where someone says, you know, you're, it's, you're not crazy. It's, it's just chemical. That's it. I'm so thankful that this is what we're talking about. Um, and it, I love the story because it seems to really highlight this. It's a tension we make and it highlights this tension, but it's a fabricated tension between the natural and the technological. And I experience that in the world of agriculture. When I'm in the Bay area talking with friends in tech, they'll say things like, Oh, ag just needs disruption. Ag just needs, you know, all these things. And they'll look at stats for how we're feeding the world and how we're doing things. And like the answer is in more technology. Um, but then I'm up here on the farm and I'm talking to other farmers and they're like, oh, those crazy Silicon Valley people don't know anything. They're going to ruin everything because they just want to do, you know, this and that. They don't know how it all works. And so there's this fabricated division. And I sense that also in the medical world, maybe it's as dramatic, maybe not where there's like a whole category of doctors and practitioners who say, you know, oils and supplements and homeopathic things are just, they're all crazy. They're malarkey. They don't understand anything. And then on the other side, they're like, but we're human bodies made of flesh and bone. And we all work together with chemicals and hormones and enzymes and proteins and all this stuff matters. Um, but what you're experiencing, what you found in your doctors is this really beautiful blend that says, I'm going to honor both. I'm going to honor the natural mystery of the human body and not feel like I have to be able to have an exact data answer for everything and just see that it actually makes a difference without necessarily having the, like we have thousands of years of quote unquote data of this oral history passed down of what it means to be human in the world that supports that the world is meant to heal itself, that the 
natural world has given us tools to heal ourselves and we can listen to those stories and learn from that deep wisdom um, even if it might not be exactly replicable in a double blind research study and there's also this beautiful amazing place for this incredibly advanced technology and cutting-edge research and double blind studies and rigorous peer review where we really get into the nitty-gritty of things and like yeah let's look at the way that our brain is moving and let's use this technology to help reconnect things that are broken that we didn't even know existed as human beings you know even a hundred years ago and i love that fusion of the two where we can break free of the binary divide that says we've got to pick a side we've got to do this that we can say wow let's honor and bless and put our hands into both cookie jars because there's a lot of good stuff in both of them and at the end of the day we are humans that are flesh and bone and chemical and sexual and spiritual and connected to the physical world and this other ethereal world that we can't see and we're connected to our ancestors and we're connected to our progeny and we're connected through all of these different things that we can only measure a very small fraction of the things that we're actually connected to as human beings. And yet we sense this larger connection, whether we're talking about the way we feel about our pets or our family or spirituality and religion, or even just looking at a really pretty sunset or a beautiful piece of art or an amazing piece of furniture. We sense these larger connections that we can't quantify and measure. And yet to me, it seems pretty obviously human that we experience all of these things. And so I love that you guys have these really tangible experiences in the medical field where you're like, yes, it's both and. And I just wonder what our world would look like if we just keep carrying that over into more and more areas of our lives. I think that relates really well to the topic that we were originally gonna talk about with technology. It's it's that yes and not the yes but but the yes and you know embracing okay we are on a course of adapting technology more and more and more into our daily lives i guess the question is like how far is too far because you don't want your kids just sitting all day on their ipads and iphones and stuff like that you want them out playing in the mud and doing you know what we did as kids making mud pies and and you know uh, running around playing tag and just enjoying reality so it's a matter of how far is too far because i thought actions are supposed to speak louder than words and lately it seems that people are you know speaking a lot and yelling a lot and saying a lot but they're not really doing a lot yes protests are great and all but you know you're just again saying a lot but what are you actually doing and i think that's where technology you know it kind of limits us we're talking a lot we're saying a lot we're we we spew out a lot of information but what are we doing to live it out and that's where you know things get tricky we do have so much to choose from and i feel like with the pandemic and the current um social movements that are going on right now it's really um, it's really apparent what we're missing too. Like some people want to be heard that we've never really listened to within our own communities. And it's such a powerful time right now. I keep hearing uh, 
people saying that 2020 is the worst year ever. And I disagree. I feel like 2020 is eye-opening. I feel like it can be a new start in so many different ways. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing, like a reset button. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting how at the beginning of this pandemic, so many people were saying, oh my gosh, I have anxiety from, you know, not going back in the world. A lot of people experienced anxiety. At first, I was like, what are you talking about? This is so relaxing. Then like probably two days later, it hit me like a wall. I just had like an anxiety attack. I was like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> but now I'm experiencing so many people saying they have anxiety about going back into the real world again. Exactly. I know. Isn't that crazy? And do you identify more as an introvert or an extrovert for, for both of you, that question? Oh gosh, this... I'm I'm definitely an extrovert, <clears throat> and honestly, that's part of why I started this podcast because I was like, <laughs> I need real conversations with people, and so yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to start a podcast so I can be a little extroverted again. It's a good outlet for that, absolutely, and it's such a creative community involvement too, Kaben. It's this is great. I love this. Absolutely, and I would say I'm an extrovert with a lot of introverted tendencies. I'm definitely an extrovert. If I'm, if when, when the world opens back up, uh, if I'm at, for instance, like a social gathering, I'm going to be talking to everyone. But then again, I like my quiet time. I like my space. What about you, Jesse? Yeah, I, I would say I've discovered that I'm more extroverted than I thought. Um, I really like my own personal space, but I'm a very huggy person. I'm very tactile. So not being able to like hug my friends when I see them uh, and being stuck on Zoom or digital is just, <laughs> maybe I should have bought a dog at the very beginning of this. I have no idea, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely a challenge for me. Man, I so resonate with that. Like, I remember even just when I was in college, you know, I had to learn, I, I went to high school in Kenya and Kenyan culture is just a very tactile culture in general. It's not uncommon to see men walking down the road, holding hands. Um, just because they are friends. And so you hold hands with your friends. And I, I remember, and like when you're having a conversation with someone, you hold their hand the whole time you're looking in their eye, having the conversation. So it's just a very tactile culture. And so I remember coming back to the U.S. for college and still being very tactile, right? So I would like have my arm draped around my friends, whether they're guys or girls, or I'd be trying to hold everyone's hand all the time. Like, and I just realized, like I had to, unlearn a lot of those behaviors but i also recognize like that lives in me like just like you absolutely. were saying like i'm a very tactile person absolutely and i i didn't know anything about kenyan culture until you just described it so i feel like i would do very well there um my family is very tactile we're very huggy we're very just it's you're always hugging somebody or like snuggling somebody and that's it's just part of the family culture uh, and we're white. <laughs> we're from California, so I don't know where that comes from. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community and engage us on Instagram at of dust and divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of 
the next episode. Enjoy. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely, I relate to that too, just with um, the inpouring of messages and the kind of excitement that comes at the beginning of like, wow, I'm really impacting people. Like, this is really cool. And I think that um, flattery turns into um, feeling used really quick. Because um, you can feel that at first, that like, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to help them. And I think sometimes, because I, I do the long reply thing too, I get excited. I drop whatever I'm doing. I do the long reply thing. And then if they still have questions, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I, I put a period at the end of what I said. Like what I said should have fixed you, right? A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of Clementine Brands for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart, and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is, to live everything. Live the questions now.